As you can tell from the screen, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. And I'm afraid wherever I stand, I'm going to end up blocking somebody, so I'll try to remember to move around occasionally to give people over here a good view. Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> For those that haven't been with us uh, on a regular basis, uh, I've been going through the prophets. And um, we came to Jeremiah, who was the last pre-exilic prophet, for those of you that still have your charts. But um, I talked to the brothers, and it turns out that this would be a good time to look at Daniel's 70 weeks, um, particularly in light of the fact that there is going to be uh, a message springing out of this that will tie in with the Holy Spirit class. I'm not going to tell you what that will be. You'll find out when we get there. But uh, we're going to take three weeks on the 70 weeks of Daniel. Three weeks. I hope you're ready for some serious Bible study. Are you? All right. I love the Word of God. Do you believe that? I do. And uh, you're going to see that. This is one of my favorite subjects because uh, it just it shows how the Word of God just fits together like that from Genesis to Revelation. It is so wonderful. And when we're done... You're going to see so many other doctrines fit into what comes out of these four simple verses. It's one of the most important prophecies in the Scripture, one of the most remarkable. And unfortunately, uh, liberals and those who don't believe in a literal millennium take this thing and they just water it down. They dole the edge of the Word of God, the sword of the Word of God, and there's nothing left. They end up uh, saying that, oh, okay, well, part of this prophecy is talking... God says specifically, by the way, there are 70 weeks, and then he breaks that down into 69 and 1, in case you didn't believe it was a little 70. And these guys take it apart, and they say, well, God just meant a really long time and a really short time. And they stretch the Bible to fit their own concepts, and you end up with nothing better, really, than uh, the soothsayers and the tabloids. You know, the seer who writes for National Enquirer that there's going to be someone with hair on their head voted president this year. And it's really a shame. If you remember when we went through Isaiah, we saw there, particularly in the 40s of Isaiah, those marvelous declarations of the person of God, where he says plainly, I am the one who declares the end from the beginning, and you will know that this is my word when it comes to pass. It's a big deal to God. That he says in advance, something is going to happen exactly this way. And then when it does happen, you look back and said, that was God speaking. And then we have it written now in this book. And we can compare this with history. And when we see them line up, we say, wow, this is the word of God. And we have a great God. That's the purpose of prophecy. As well as uh, causing us to look forward to the unfulfilled prophecies and be ready in particular for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a shame that uh, this particular prophecy, the key prophecy really in uh, eschatological things, that is future things, is watered down that way. So what I want to do now, we're going to take three weeks on this. I've, I've done it uh, before and I've seen others do it. They try to do it in one message. Yeah, right, Tom. And the saints just walk out with their heads spinning and they say, okay, if he says so, you know. And that's not the way to do it. 
I want you, I really, this is my prayer, I really want you to understand when we're done so that you could sit down with someone and show them this remarkable prophecy in the Bible. I have seen God use this as an evangelistic tool because it uh, shows that this is the Word of God and it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, talks about His second coming, and it makes people think, hey, maybe God really is speaking, you know? I need to sit up and take notice. So, let me tell you now, uh, you're going to have to pay attention. And three weeks, really, is just barely enough. So, I'm not going to be able to do a lot of review, week two and week three. So, if somebody comes in next week and they weren't here today, I don't know what to say. You fill them in or something for me, okay? So, pay close attention now. And the way we're going to do it, let me just uh, give you the preview here. The first week, we're going to look at the starting point of the 70 weeks. We're going to nail it down. And it's so neat. You can do that just from the Bible. And most people have never done that. But it's wonderful to dig into the Bible. We're going to, by the way, you're going to wear your Bible out by the time we're done. But to dig in and find out for ourselves what the starting point is. The second week is going to be kind of a detective story. I, I enjoy that one. Where we're going to go on the trail of the Antichrist through the Bible. I don't know about you, but for the longest time in my life, one of the hardest things for me to do was to get a, a handle on all the prophetic scripture and how it all fit together. That's tough, because there's a lot of it. And so I hope this will encourage you as we look at one thread that runs through the prophetic scripture, that is the career of the Antichrist. And you're going to see it all the way from Daniel to Revelation and how the Word of God just goes like that. And when we're done, we're doing it for a reason, we're going to reach out and find what I call the golden key buried in the Bible that's going to unlock Daniel chapter 9 for us. Too often when this is taught, uh, the preacher just goes and grabs that thing and says, okay, here it is, and, and it's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. We're not going to do that. You're going to see how we get there and how it fits into Daniel 9. And then the third week, we will confirm the fulfillment of the first part of the prophecy in a wonderful way by looking mainly in the Gospel of Matthew. We will actually watch the Lord Jesus Christ moment by moment act out, fulfill the prophecy in his very life. It's a wonderful thing. Okay? Are you ready? Okay, let's read it. Four, really, four uh, simple verses. It looks so innocent. But then when we read it, you're going to see yeah, there's a lot here, more here than meets the eye. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. This is Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to do six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. 
until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Did you understand all that? <laughs> okay, we're going to break it apart and look at it a little at a time. But first, just very briefly, the context here. Daniel is, is really, this is um, in answer to a prayer. Daniel chapter 9 is mainly a prayer, quite a long prayer, a heartfelt prayer of Daniel confessing his sins and the sins of his people, the Jews, while they're in captivity. They've been taken captive by the Babylonians, They've been in captivity for quite a while. Daniel has been studying the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he saw in there that Jeremiah prophesied that they would be held captive 70 years. And Daniel is adding things up, and he knows we must be getting near the end of the captivity. And so he goes before the Lord, and he appeals to the Lord, confessing and saying the, the sins of the people and his own sin, and saying, Lord, now isn't it time? You know, please let us return. Uh, to our city and to our, our country. And so as we go through this now, remember first of all that it was intended for Daniel, although God knew he would not understand most of it. But we want to think about it from Daniel's point of view to see what he would have thought about some of these things. Okay? And then we'll look and see uh, the deeper meanings as we go through. Okay, so, uh, go ahead and do the next slide there, John. Um, whoa. Uh, okay. You want to go back? Yeah. Up at the top there, second one. No, second, second one on the list. Up, no, one more. There you go. Okay, try it again. Oh. Uh, yeah. No, let me see it a second here. Hang on. I think we have the uh, wrong slideshow here. Okay, so. Be patient. Uh-oh, don't look. <laughs> Get some room to maneuver here. Let's try this guy. There we go, that's the one we want. Okay. All right. Okay. So there's our six items that we have here in verse 24. And uh, you'll notice I have one of them underlined, and, and you'll see why when we go through it. <clears throat> so look at verse 24. And if you notice when we read it, these, these are kind of all-encompassing things. Did you notice that? You know, I mean, really far-reaching events. For example, uh, to finish the transgression. Wow. So let's think, first of all, from Daniel's point of view. He probably would have thought what God meant by that was finish 
the transgression of the Jews at that time. That is, they are in captivity because they sinned. And so maybe God means, um, you know, finish atoning for the sin so we can go back to our city. Something like that. Okay? And to be quite honest, it's not clear what some of these mean. And you'll find out it's not important. We'll know in, uh, when we see the Lord face to face. There is one we can be definite about. It's the one I have underlined, and that's the critical one. Okay? So, for example, I mean, you're sitting there. I'm, no, I, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, uh, oh, oh, by the way, let me, before we look at the six, I need to say something here. Notice that it says 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Did you notice that? That is very important. Every word of God is inspired. We believe here in the verbal inspiration of the word of God. And as you're going to see time and time again, we're going to point at individual words and their importance to understand what's going on. And here this prophecy is specifically directed toward the Jews. Your people, the Jews, your holy city, Jerusalem. We're going to keep that in mind as we go through this. So this first one, to finish the transgression, we might think, well, that might have something to do with the cross, for example, right? Possibly. Uh, or go to the end of the history of planet Earth. You know, finish the transgression then. Could be. But we can't say definitely. And it's not important. Uh, to make an end of sins, that's similar. And it could be any of the three I just named. Don't get, don't get worried. It's not important. Okay? To make reconciliation for iniquity. Wow. Okay, Daniel probably would have thought the captivity. Because that's what they were there for. But that is most likely talking about the cross of Christ. Okay? Make reconciliation for iniquity. So that these 70 weeks are going to include the cross. But here's the biggie. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Okay. That one we know. Has that happened yet? No. Anybody believe that's happened yet, by the way? You know, somebody who doesn't believe in the millennium will say that. Did you know that? They teach that. Can you imagine? If this is everlasting righteousness, whoa, I need to think what sin would be like. <clears throat> but uh, it's, it's talking about the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over the, worth, over the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, as he should. Okay? You believe that? You don't, you don't sound convinced. Okay, well, let me convince you. Look back at Isaiah chapter 9. <clears throat> It says to bring in everlasting righteousness. Not just righteousness, but the everlasting kind. The kind that never ends. Okay? We're going to see that in Isaiah. Two prophecies, Isaiah 9, very familiar. Isaiah 9, verse 6. You there? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given... And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even what? Forever. You got that? That hasn't happened yet. You know who the ruler of this world is right now? That's right. That's what he's called. The prince of this world. <clears throat> now, of course, the Lord Jesus is holding the universe together. You know, it's not exactly a small thing. But as far as this world, this cosmos, as it's called, the system that we live in that tries to make people happy without God, that's ruled by the devil. Okay? 
And when Jesus comes to rule, it's not going to be like that ever again. He is going to rule starting then, and he's never going to stop. And I can hardly wait. So there's the forever part. You say, well, I don't see the word righteousness there. Okay, well, for you skeptics, look over at chapter 11. We'll look at another prophecy talking about the same thing. There shall come forth, chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness, there it is, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Again, verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Okay. I think you knew that before we looked there, but I want to drive it home. It's going to be a righteous rule that's going to last forever. So, back to chapter 9. Daniel. The phrase was to bring in everlasting righteousness. That is to start it. Okay? So, this 70 weeks will take us up to the time when the millennial reign of Christ begins. That's the idea. Okay? That, that's interesting already, right? If you think about it, because it hasn't happened yet. And we know offhand uh, the decree to restore the, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem is around four or 500 B.C., so we're talking 2,500 years. That's a lot more than 70 weeks, isn't it? 70 weeks is about what? About a year, huh? 52 weeks in a year. So already, <coughs> and we're going to do this, <coughs> it's perfectly legitimate to use 2020 hindsight as believers. And we, and we know that Jesus has not come to reign yet, and so the 70 weeks has to be something besides ordinary weeks of days, right? We'll find out what they are. But they're clearly not 70 uh, literal weeks. Okay, then uh, the next thing is to seal up vision and prophecy. That could be uh, to seal up means to write it down, in which case that was completed around 90 AD when the book of Revelation was written. It could mean um, fulfilling them all. It's, it's not clear and it's not important. Finally, to anoint the most holy. Well, the most holy generally talks about the holy place in the temple. And so to anoint it means to get it ready for service. So uh, this could be talking about the rebuilding of the temple and getting it ready for sacrifices. Okay? And I believe, actually, it's talking about the rebuilding of the temple which is about to happen in preparation for the Lord's return. When the Lord returns, we'll talk about it. Their sacrificial system is going to be reinstituted in Israel and there has to be a temple for that to happen. And the temple has to be rebuilt. And there are Jews, as we speak, waiting in the wings with the furniture, ready to move in. There's a problem right now, though, for that. Do you know what it is? Yeah, it's a place called the Dome of the Rock. You ever heard of it? It's a Muslim holy place and it's sitting right where the temple should be. Okay, the amazing thing is the Antichrist is going to work around that. Isn't that incredible? 
this guy is going to be somebody special to be able to do that. Okay. Okay, so uh, go ahead and, and you can do the next slide, and this time it'll be the right one. <clears throat> Where you're going to see this picture progress as we go through uh, our study. So to begin with, we're going to lay it out this way. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Starting point. You got that? There's going to be a decree, a command. to. While Daniel, uh, Daniel is writing these things, by the way, Jerusalem is laying in ruins. So there's going to be a decree to rebuild it. From that point until Messiah the Prince. Now we can use 2020 hindsight. We know who Messiah is, don't we? And we know when he came. Shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And I'm well aware <clears throat> there are some difficulties in the Hebrew, but they don't have anything to do with the interpretation. For example, some of you may have moat uh, instead of wall. Some may have plaza or open place instead of street. No problem. It really doesn't affect what we're going to be looking at. But just to let you know, I know some of you may have different readings there. It doesn't affect what we're talking about. There are two points in time. One, it starts with the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? So we have it here. You got that? You believe that? Yeah? Okay. Until Messiah the Prince. There are 69. 62 and 7 make 69. And we know it's 69 later because he talks about the one remaining week in the last verse. So, one week after that. You convinced? You, you, you're with me? Okay. Now, go ahead and uh, put up the next one, John. <clears throat> we know roughly, that we're going to look at them, by the way. This is what we're going to do this morning. Look at the decrees. There were four decrees for the Jews to go back and do something. And they're all in the Bible. We're going to look at them. And they all occurred within about a 100-year range, about 540 to 440 B.C. Okay? So I, have, I added the date on the left. We know somewhere in there is our starting point of the first uh, 70 weeks, the first 69 weeks. Now, I'm putting in 4... You say, what's 4 B.C.? What's that? Well, that's, that's the best date we know now that, that the Lord Jesus was born. You may say, oh, I thought he was born in 0 B.C. No. The, the uh, Julian calendar, uh, actually the Gregorian calendar, wasn't adjusted until well after the Lord, several hundred years. And uh, I think it was a monk or somebody decided on December 25th as his birth date. And the day they picked as 0 was the uh, year he was born. Well, we know now that that wasn't the case. It was roughly about 4 B.C. So I'm just putting that up right now. The way we're going to do this, we're going to discover this together. I know some of you know in advance, you know, that that's not right. That uh, It's not the starting point. It's not the birth date of the Lord Jesus. But we're going to start from scratch and assume we don't know anything. So when we would first read this, we would think, oh, okay, Messiah the Prince, that would be his birthday. And it'd be 4 B.C. And we're going to put it up there for now. That's what we're going to start with. Okay? That's what we would think from the decree to Messiah the Prince. Well, it would be when he was born, 4 B.C. And we can already tell. What are we looking at there? About 500 years. Now, that's not 70 weeks, is it? 
However, if you multiply it out, 70 times, it's actually 69 times 7. We'll use 70 right now just for ease of arithmetic. 70 times 7 is 490. It sounds suspiciously like these weeks are weeks of years, doesn't it? Okay. And so, uh, you want to go to the next one, John? I have that up there. 69 times 7 is 483, actually. And if it were days, it would be 483 days. We know it's not 483 days from the decree until Messiah the Prince. It's not even close. So, we're going to call it years right now. But I put quotes around it. Okay? I don't know if it's going to be exact years or not, but it's roughly a year. Okay, go ahead and go to the next one. So we're going to update our little graph now by saying 69 weeks is really 483 years, quote. We'll find out later exactly what that is. So right now we'll just put a placeholder in it with, with quotes. And so right now that's about all we can do using what we've read and what we know from history. Okay? As we go on, this is going to become clearer and clearer until, bang, when we find our golden key and we put it in the lock, it's all going to fit together in a remarkable, wonderful way. So hang in there. Be patient. Okay? So now our first job is to nail down the starting point because we have four decrees to choose from. We've got to find the right one. Okay? And the wonderful thing about this is that you can do almost all of this strictly from the Bible because all four decrees are right here in that book you have in your hand. The only thing you'd have to look up would be in secular history, Britannica or something, you know, when that decree took place okay but we can actually look through them and pick the decree by looking in our bibles alone we're going to do that Uh, go ahead and put up the next one now so the first one all the decrees by the way not surprisingly are in ezra and nehemiah so let's turn back to ezra chapter one the left turn Now, let's, let's remind ourselves what we're looking for here. We're looking for a command or a decree to restore and build what? Jerusalem. Say it again. Build what? That's very important. Because the, the guys that don't believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ go back and they'll pick any of these decrees three of which are clearly wrong, but they'll pick them anyway, and they end up with this fuzzy, you know, long and short time stuff. And yet, the simplest Bible student can look at these and say, there's there's only one that matches that criterion. The other three don't even come close. And you're going to see that. Okay? The first, you you know what the first rule, by the way, in interpreting the Bible is? If you can take the Bible literally, do it. That's it. If you can take it literally, do it. Now, when it talks about God, uh, you know, guarding it, hiding us under his feathers, obviously then we know that God doesn't have wings. Okay. But when we can take it literally, we should. And unfortunately, the effort of most people is to begin with allegorizing it or uh, symbolizing it. We're not going to do that. So we believe that there is going to be a 69-week period from some decree here until Messiah the Prince, and we're going to find it. Let's find the starting point. Well, let's look here. Uh, chapter 1, here's the decree. Verse starts in verse 2. It's Cyrus's decree. 
Ezra 1, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Now, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men in his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. What is this a decree to rebuild? Thank you. The temple. You see that? Is it a decree to rebuild the city? No. Now you may wonder why are we making such a big deal about this? Well, first of all, because God says the city. Secondly, because it was a big deal in those days. Whether you live in Hayward, San Leandro, or whatever, is there a wall around your city? We don't have them today. But in these days, the wall around the city was the most important part of the city because it protected the people. There were lots of foreign invaders in those days. And it was a big thing when a people had been conquered and the wall leveled, which is what happened in Jerusalem, by the way. There is no wall, just a bunch of rubble and piles of stones there. It's a big thing for a king to be willing to tell the people, okay, you can go back and you can put those walls back up again. That's rebuilding the city, by the way. Because once he's allowed them to do that, it, you're talking about months and sometimes years if you want to go back in and, and uh, conquer that people again because of that wall. You've got to do a siege and try to sap under them and it takes forever. Sometimes you never do get through. You understand? So it was a big thing for, it was one thing for a king to say, go back, yeah, go on back and build your temple. That's fine, you can worship your God. No threat there. But when he says rebuild Jerusalem, implying therefore the walls also, that's a big deal. And so that's why in this decree of Cyrus, it is very important. He only says the temple. He says, all, he says it three places here, the house of God. And the Daniel prophecy said a command to rebuild, restore and build Jerusalem. That's the exact words. Restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? This doesn't meet the criterion. Do you believe that? Huh? Okay. And you can read on. Now, I'm pointing you to these passages. I'd like you, sometime this week, you go home, you read Ezra and Nehemiah. So you read the whole thing. You convince yourself when we're done that the prophecy we're going to come across is the right one. It's not hard to do. And you may say, well, this is trivial. I tell you, I could put a stack of books like this right now that use this prophecy as a starting point. And it violates the prophecy of Daniel. It's incredible. Okay. Uh, the next one, John. Set the, the setting for you now. You say, why do we need a second decree? Well, I'll tell you why. It's actually back in chapter 4. So go back there. What happened was the Jews went back and they started working on the temple. And the people who lived there that weren't Jews got upset. They don't want these guys coming back. It's been nice. Those guys have been gone, you know. We've moved into their houses. 
We've taken over their land. We don't want these guys coming back. And so they did everything they could to keep them from doing it. What they did was they made up a lie. And they sent it back to the king, who was Artaxerxes now, and they said, hey, you know what's going on? These Jews have come back and they're rebuilding the city. And you understand the problem because I explained it to you, right? If that were the case, that's not a good, the king would get upset at that. And look at what the, the letter they sent back. Verse, uh, the letter in mine, it, by the way, is indented. And it starts in verse uh, 9. That's the from part. And then uh, 11 through 22 is indented. That's the letter they send back, the bad guys, saying these, these naughty Jews are doing more than building the house of God. Look at verse 12. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. You see that? That's a lie. They're not doing that. But the, the king is paranoid about something like that. And when he hears this, he shuts the work down. He puts a stop to it because he's afraid of that great wall coming up again and if he has to go back there and do business with them again, it's going to take, take him years or worse. So he puts a stop to it. Verse 21, Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built. Do you see, by the way, are you, as we're going through this, you see the critical issue of rebuilding the city versus the temple. This is a key to understanding Daniel chapter 9. That's the issue, rebuilding the city. And read the past, read it when you go home, read up until now, you find out it never says anything about them touching the walls or rebuilding the city. And you're going to see when we get later, they hadn't rebuilt them because when we get to Ezra, the walls are still in ruins. They hadn't done this. These guys are lying. So as a result, we need a decree to get the work started again. And that's what chapter 6 is about. Really, all it is is a reissuing of the original decree to go up and build the temple. Because uh, somebody said, uh, looking, go look back there and see there was a decree to let them at least build the temple, you know. Can't you let them do that? And they go and look and they find it. And in verse 7 of chapter 6, Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Verse 8, Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Boy, I don't know what could be clearer. This is clearly the temple again, isn't it? And you can read the whole thing and it only talks about the temple. This is not the decree we want. Okay? So we're going to have to keep looking. We're running out of decrees. We've only got two left. John. Next one is the next chapter, chapter 7. You say, why, why do we need another one? Well, they're getting a little skittish now, you know. They don't want to stray at all from the building of uh, the temple and anger the king. And so they hadn't furnished it. Here's this temple that's empty. And so to make it official, the, what this decree is going to be, it's going to allow them to furnish it and start using it. Uh, chapter 7, we'll look at verse 16. He's been talking about them taking up silver and gold and furniture and so on. He says, uh, verse uh, 16, And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, 
are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 19, also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. Verse 23, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven and so on. I have in my Bible, I have these red underlines, okay? And over and over, it's the house of God. We're not building the city. The city is still in ruins because the kings want it that way. And the decree was supposed to be to rebuild Jerusalem, right? Now, I hate to tell you this, but this would have been really nice because 469 weeks is 483 years. If we added that to the date of this one, which is 457, we would come up with 26 A.D., right toward the end of the life of the Lord. It would be right smack dab in his life. Wouldn't that be nice? And you see the commentators jump all over this one because that does happen. The problem is it says nothing about rebuilding the city. And we have to be honest with the Word of God. God said very clearly, and this is so important, by the way, He said in Daniel 9, restore and build Two words. Did you notice that? In Daniel 9. That's so significant because that first decree, I didn't tell you this, but that first decree of Cyrus is talked about in Isaiah. And some of you may know that. Dave picked me up on this when I uh, went through this a couple of months ago with the family. He said, what about that uh, passage in Isaiah that says Cyrus is going to go up and uh, build Jerusalem? That must be the decree. There is a prophecy in, in Isaiah talking about Cyrus. And apparently, they might have built a few houses here and there because we see them in Ezra. But they didn't rebuild the city. And we saw from there, he didn't give them permission. The purpose of God stressing Cyrus in the book of Isaiah was for God to say, because it's in the 40s, by the way, I think chapter 44, God is saying, I am so great. Here's this great man, Cyrus. He's going to be my puppet. I'm going to make him let the Jews go back without payment in other words i'm not even going to pay him to do it he's just going to do it because i want him to and the stress there is on the sovereignty of god you understand and really if you think about it in a way he his was the biggest decree because they've been in captivity all this time and he was the first one to finally say okay you guys can go home now that's a big deal and that's why god stressed that one in isaiah but it doesn't match the decree in Daniel 9, because he says there plainly, not only to build, but to restore Jerusalem. That is, return it to its original state. And that doesn't happen until the next one in Ezra. And then it does happen very clearly. Did you follow that? You didn't, don't worry about it. Okay? You do see the first three decrees here clearly don't fit what we're looking for. Right? Being honest with the Word of God. So, let's turn to Nehemiah. John, I don't like that date. Four, four, four. Add four, eight, three to that. You get roughly about forty A.D. That's seven years after Jesus. Uh oh. But we're going to go by faith through all of this and trust that it's all going to work out in the end because it's the Word of God. And guess what? It will. Ezra, uh, Nehemiah chapter one. So let me just set the setting for you now. Uh, Nehemiah is what was called the cupbearer. We don't have those today. 
When we elect a president, there isn't a guy that carries the president's cup around for him. But in these days, they had all kinds of menial tasks. When a king conquered a country, you know what he would do? He would take the greatest men in the country, administrators, rulers, governors, uh, rich people, and he would make them his servants. You see, it would show how great he was. And we know from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a great man. Not only a great man of God, but a great administrator. He, he's the one that basically single-handedly whipped the Jews into shape and, and built the city in time of trouble over a period of many years. He was a great man. But in the court of uh, Artaxerxes, he's just a cupbearer. You see, Artaxerxes can say, look who my cupbearer is, you know. Nehemiah is a great man. All he does is carry my cup around for me, you know. And so uh, that's who Nehemiah is, and he's serving in the court, and the word comes back to him in verse 3. They said to me, talking about the Jews, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. We don't need any more than this one verse to prove to us that we haven't found the decree yet. Because the city is still laying in rubble, just as Nebuchadnezzar left it 70 years ago. Okay? Well, not surprisingly, Nehemiah, when he hears it, he's very sad. In fact, it brings tears to his eyes, and he mourns for several days. And he fasts, and he prays to God. Now, the problem with that is that when you're the cupbearer, you're supposed to be a cheerful guy. See, the king's got enough on his mind beyond having morose people serving him. He doesn't like that. Do you understand? And if you're the cupbearer and you come in there, you know, here's your cup, you know, with a despairing look on your face, it's liable to be because there's plenty of more cupbearers where you came from. Okay? But that's the situation. And we're going to find out that Artaxerxes isn't such a bad guy. He really likes Nehemiah. He really respects him. And he doesn't hold it against him that he's sad. You know? And it's because God is preserving him for something, you see. And I want to drop little things as we go through this so we can have... Think of that, you know, uh, I think it was Bill that coined the phrase, but it's true. If you're a believer and you're serving God and you're in his will, you know you're immortal until your work is done. Did you know that? No one can touch you as long as you're in the will of God doing his will until God is ready. You're immortal. And so it was with Nehemiah. God had something great for Nehemiah, something a lot greater than carrying cups around for a pagan king so let's look at chapter 2 it came to pass in the month of Nisan that's a, a Jewish month in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when wine was before him that I took the wine and gave it to the king now I had never been sad in his presence before therefore the king said to me why is your face sad since you are not sick this is nothing but sorrow of heart wise guy huh he can tell that then I became dreadfully afraid. Now you understand why. If you didn't know before when you read that verse, you understand why now. You know, he, uh, whoops. You know, ha. Uh, things are okay, you know. So he, you know, he says something, said to the king, may the king live forever, verse 3. Why should my face not be sad when the city, big word here, we're thinking Daniel 9, the city... The place of my father's tombs lies waste. Is the city rebuilt yet? No. 
how can the 6,000 commentaries that have been written that say these other, one of these other three decrees is the one that fits Daniel 9 be written? I can't understand it. If you just take the word of God literally, clearly they haven't been, uh, they don't fit. The place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. I love verse 4. Then the king said to me, what do you request? Wouldn't it be nice to have a king who has all power say that to you? What do you want? Pretty good, huh? You got a king here who could give you the moon, and so Nehemiah asks for it. And that's a uh, lesson to us as believers, huh? When we pray, we're coming to a great king. Nehemiah didn't hesitate to ask for the greatest thing he could have asked for in regard to his people, and we shouldn't hesitate to ask great things of our great God. He says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, listen to this, to the city of my father's tombs that I may what? Wow. There it is. And that's a big request. But nobody up until this point has been willing to do that. And kings don't generally like doing that. But he asks. And you've got to look fast because he doesn't even bother saying yes. He says, when are you going to go? Verse 6, so the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? There it is. How long are you going to be gone? Isn't that great? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. By the way, a key phrase I skipped there, and I wanted to save it, is in verse 4. It's the end of it. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Between the king's question and Nehemiah's answer, he prayed. Isn't that great? And um, read the book. I'm going to give you a bunch of assignments besides reading through Ezra and Nehemiah and convincing yourself that this is the right decree. Read through Nehemiah and look for all the little arrow prayers. It's, it's a unique book in the scripture. Nehemiah's writing along the history here, and all of a sudden it says, uh, Oh Lord, remember me. Or, Oh Lord, take note of their threats. He dresses God with a little one-sentence prayer all over the book of... It's wonderful, all over the book of Nehemiah. Read it just for that. Nehemiah was never out of the presence of God. He was always praying, every situation. And he didn't have to run into his room and close the door. I mean, here he is standing before the king, and this prayer was right between the king's question and his answer. And God honored it. Isn't that great? And that should be an encouragement to us, you know, don't think, oh yeah, I have my prayer time in the morning or I have my prayer time in the evening. Pray always. That's what it says in the New Testament. Praying always. Jesus taught in this parable that men ought always to what? Pray. And Nehemiah is a living example of that. Okay, well, I don't know if you're convinced, but we found this is the decree. And the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you read it, is devoted to Nehemiah going back and taking the bull by the horns, literally, and they rebuild the city. In fact, the, the, most of the beginning part is dedicated to rebuilding the wall. Walls were so important, sections had names, towers had names, gates had names. And so you'll read as they finish the gate named Golden or the gate named this or the tower named that and so on. And then when they're done, uh, it turns out that the middle of it is still empty. You've got this wall with nothing in it. And so they go out and they tithe the people. What I mean by that is they take one out of every ten because nobody wants to live there. Nobody wanted to live there because they knew that would be the target if an enemy ever came back again. 
So they take one out of ten and they bring them from the surrounding uh, provinces and put them in the city to populate it, at which point they would build houses and businesses. And finally, apparently, that's what the seven weeks in uh, Daniel referred to. Remember it said 62 and 7? Do you remember that? Or 7 and 62, actually. Apparently the seven weeks, which would be about 49 years, was how long it took to finally bring it back up to where it was like the old city of Jerusalem with houses and businesses and a flourishing industry and all of that. We don't know that because, you know, they didn't write down the date. You know, today the last house was built. But that's probably what it was because it said it was uh, would be re- rebuilt in troublesome times. Okay, <clears throat> next uh, slide there. I don't, know if, I don't know if we've advanced all that much. The only thing we've done is we put a date down there, 444 B.C. You see it? Okay, that's the only change we've made in our slides. You give up? The Word of God is true, let me tell you. And we're going to come back now. And next week, as I said, <clears throat> this is going to become a detective story next week. And just real fast, a little anecdote here. Many of you know that the first one to really write at length about Daniel's 70 weeks and, and, and dig in and show how it was fulfilled was Sir Robert Anderson. Of uh, He was British, and he did it in the late 1800s. But a lot of people don't know that he was the head of the um, uh, Criminal Investigation Division, the CID, at Scotland Yard. Isn't that interesting? He was a detective. And you'll see next week that it takes that kind of a person to really hang in there with the Word of God because already, you know, a lot of people would give up at this point. And they did. You know, there's four decrees. Oh, man, I don't know which one it is. And they just pick one and they quit. But you've got to hang in there. And we're going to have to really dig into a lot of Scripture to follow the Antichrist like a detective. We're going to call witnesses. We're going to interrogate them next week. We're going to find out they all agree about this guy. And when we're done, right in Revelation... Right at the very end, when God finished the Bible, he dropped a little golden key there that we can then pick up and take back to Daniel and unlock it. And we're going to see it fulfilled in a marvelous way. Okay? So this week, maybe review for yourself Ezra and Nehemiah, just to convince yourself again. You'll see what I was talking about. It's wonderful. The Word of God is so clear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your Word. And Lord... When we study your word like this, we realize that there are certainly treasures buried that we have never seen yet. And so we want to commit ourselves, Lord, to being people of the word. Lord, help us to be serious about not only studying your Bible and reading it, memorizing it, but obeying it. Lord, we love your word. To us, it's like you say in your own word, silver tried in the fire seven times. It's pure. It's rich. It's treasure. Lord, help us to be uh, dividers of the word, workmen of the word, as it says in the New Testament, that we may not be ashamed. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.